This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A little boy, his glasses too big for his small face, smiles into the camera. He's proudly showing off his school science fair project a large poster board filled with colorful photos of frogs. But in less than an hour after the flash went off, he would disappear into thin air, never to be seen again. Teachers, staff, police, and search teams probed every classroom, office, and hallway of Skyline Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. But the innocent second grader had vanished like a ghost. As investigators searched the school grounds, police questioned his dad, Kane Horman, and his stepmother, Terry, who claimed the very last time she saw Kyron was when she dropped him off at school and he waved to her from the top of the staircase. But Kyron's biological mother, Desiree Young, immediately had a growing sense of dread. I told my husband, we gotta get to Portland. And I was so extremely frustrated with the fact that I was four hours away. And then I started to panic. Kyron doesn't have his coat. Kyron is outside and the sun is starting to set. He's gonna get cold. (laughs) Then I started going over the conversation with Terry again in my head. I looked over at Tony and I said, if she or Kyron, You're gonna have to hold me back. It was around 4.20 p.m., nearly eight hours after Kyron was reportedly last seen, that his mother, Desiree, first learned that her son hadn't shown up for school that day. She got a phone call from the school secretary. Her first thought was that it was impossible. There was no way that Kyron would go missing. He wouldn't wander away or ever leave with a stranger. This was a boy that was so attached to his mother when he was with her that he refused to leave her side. As she frantically drove from her home in Medford, Oregon to Portland on the opposite side of the state, all she could think about was where in the world was her little boy. And as the days passed without a single clue, with no sign of Kyron, people began to wonder if his stepmother, Terry, the last adult to see him before he disappeared, knew more than she was letting on. As Kyron's biological parents frantically searched for their son, Terry, his stepmother's bizarre behavior and spotty story, began to have Desiree questioning what really happened at school that day. You're listening to Into Thin Air, the mysterious disappearance of Kyron Horman. As I navigate around my new studio here in Texas, I like to be prepared for anything like unexpected interviews outside in the rain. That's why my Vessies are my absolute favorite go-to shoes. They keep my feet snug, dry, and stylish. 
My Bessie Stormburst fits my professional vibe, ensuring style and comfort in any weather condition. Transform your everyday routine into an adventure with Bessie's Stormburst. Comfortable, stylish, and waterproof. Not water resistant. Big difference. Bessie's lineup, Stormburst, the Everyday Classic, and Chelsea offers unparalleled comfort for all-day wear. Embrace every moment come rain or shine with Bessie. Head over to Bessie.com slash mystery to explore our versatile collection and claim your 15% discount on your first order. Visit Bessie.com slash mystery for footwear that will gear you up for the whole year round and get 15% off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's 3.46 p.m. on June 4, 2010, when the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office receives a call from the school secretary, Susan Hall. She reports that Kyron has gone missing. This sheriff's office doesn't take these matters lightly. At 5.30 p.m., word of Kyron's disappearance spreads rapidly through the school's district. Every public school has sent out a broadcast phone message to every registered student that Kyron did not arrive home that day. Panic begins to ensue among this tight-knit community. On the fateful day, every hour, every minute, every little second mattered. It was all crucial to finding young Kyron. At 7 p.m., County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Lee Gossin alerts Sergeant Travis Goldberg, the county's on-call coordinator for search and rescue efforts, that they need to begin a formal missing person search for Kyron. Within the hour, the county's public information officer, Lieutenant Mary Lindstrand, returns calls from members of the media who've heard the broadcast message from the school district and arranges to meet them at Skyline Elementary. 30 minutes later, a caravan of news people arrive at the school where Lindstrand briefly updates them on who Kyron Horman is and where he was last seen. She makes sure each reporter understands the status of this missing person's investigation. They also receive a picture of the boy so they can send it to local news stations and the Oregonian, the state's most popular newspaper. As Portland police officers swarm the school's halls in search of Chiron, They scour every closet, bathroom, and corner because he might be trapped in a place that he can't get out of. Or worse, a place where no one can hear him. During the officer's initial search, investigators are taking their time to establish a coherent timeline that will help them try to locate the boy's whereabouts or at least give them a clue as to where he possibly could be. Now, back at Kane Horman's house, He and Terry are grilled by police, asked to remember every single detail about that day, a day that seemed like an ordinary one. But when it comes to missing persons cases, oftentimes it's the little details that matter a whole lot. 
Sometimes they're the key to solving a mystery as baffling as this one. Even more police officers arrive at Skyline Elementary for additional help in looking through crawl spaces, storage spaces, and outbuildings. But there's just no trace of the boy. Not his backpack, not a piece of clothing, or footsteps to see the direction he might have been heading in. In these types of missing persons cases, finding as little as a shoe or a piece of their clothing could at least streamline the investigation into a certain path, a certain direction. For example, if they had found any piece of clothing or his backpack, then it would strongly suggest that an abduction took place. And if that were the case, they would have taken it to the lab and tested it to find other DNA prints. But nothing was found. That's why this case was truly inexplicable. As far as what my concern is, that, that somebody else had come into the school, it was open. Uh, the, the, the protocol is you're supposed to have only the front door unlocked and all the doors were unlocked. And roughly, from what I understand, about 400 people came in and out of that school. No badges, no signing in or out. Now, you might be thinking, how would they even consider that this child could be abducted in a busy school? I mean, wouldn't any child yell out? Well, I have to tell you, I've had the displeasure of interviewing pedophiles, child molesters, and child abductors on more than one occasion. And I have asked them, you have abducted children from busy places. You've abducted them from the lobbies of movies where people are all around. How do you do it without them drawing attention to themselves? They have a myriad of techniques. Many of them say they will punch the child violently in the stomach or the solar plexus to take their breath away or hit them in the throat where they can't breathe for a period of time. It keeps them from yelling out for help. They then pick them up, hold them as though it were their own child asleep, and calmly and casually walk right out the door in plain sight. So is it possible that someone could have abducted him from the school and not draw attention to themselves? Sadly, absolutely it's possible. Predators know how to do it. By the time the clock strikes midnight, the police were no closer to finding Chiron than at the moment they started. And this was obviously devastating news for the parents. What started out as a few officers checking classrooms and storage buildings has turned into a full-scale missing persons investigation in which the Portland authorities had to seek help from outside agencies. They knew they had themselves a bizarre disappearance, and it seemed the only person that could possibly hold the key to the mystery was his stepmother, Terry. She told police that she and the boy parted ways just before 9 a.m. in front of the school office and said she watched Kyron take the stairs and walk towards his classroom. But right away, this statement raised a red flag for Desiree. She was familiar with the layout of her son's school, and she knew that if Kyron and Terry were really standing where Terry claimed they were, there was no way she could have seen his classroom from that angle. I clarified with her when I was talking to her. I said to her, 
you were on the stairs? And she said, yes, I was on the stairs waving to him. And I said to her, that's not possible. You can't, from that side entrance, east end of the school, you cannot see Kyron's classroom if he was right next to the door from the top of the stairs. You can't. There's about a 50-foot distance between the staircase where Terry says she last saw Kyron down the hall to his classroom. Desiree wondered why Terry would say she could see him walking to his classroom if there was no way she could have. Was she lying? It was something Desiree immediately suspected. And eventually, Kane did too. The first red flag for me was lying about the science fair and the school that day. She lied about where she was positioned when she saw Kyron and at the last place that she saw him. The stories I've been told are different than what she's been told. So even the the day at the school and what she did at school that day, her accounts of it to me are completely different. But despite her initial suspicions, Desiree remained a united front with Kane and Terry. She figured sticking together would be her best chance of finding her son, who at this point had now been missing for almost 24 hours. On June 5th, the following morning, by 5 a.m., the county sheriff's office calls another search group, Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue. They were called in to assist the National Guard and the FBI throughout the rugged terrain of Portland's vast mountainous region. By the time they arrived on site, there were already about 60 to 70 people involved in the search, with hundreds more to follow within the next few hours. The Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue is a specific, very unique organization consisting of volunteers who know to navigate Oregon's woods, islands, caves, mountains, hills, and shoreline off the back of their hand. In other words, they come in handy for those types of situations. It's 9 a.m. The Associated Press receives an email notification with all the details surrounding Chiron's investigation. They publish it, making this case known nationwide. Throughout the day, as law enforcement and search and rescue teams completed an immediate grid search of the school and surrounding area, hundreds of kids and their parents waited inside the school in order to talk to investigators. As many as 50 detectives interviewed nearly 300 students and their parents, and they all reached the same consensus. There's no way this boy ran away, and if he was abducted, no one saw anything. If you've seen any movie about a missing person, you can probably imagine what this search effort looked like. They had officers from the sheriff's office, volunteers from 18 different search and rescue teams, members of the National Guard, and members of the FBI. They also had friends and neighbors who were looking inside every tunnel underneath every rock next to every tree below every ravine inside each cave and through and under every bush. Hundreds of flashlights, hundreds of boots on the ground, even helicopters who had an aerial view of the entire forest. And no one saw a thing, not a trace of this young boy. A young boy who reportedly could not see three feet in front of his face. They even had dozens of track dogs on site, especially in the rugged areas where it was harder for people to access. 
With Kane and Terry's permission, search officials use some of Kyron's dirty shirts so that the dogs can pick up his scent. And as far as they were concerned, every time one of the dogs would bark or run to a certain area in the woods, they thought it might have been the boy, only to find that it was bones of a dead animal. Wherever Kyron was, or God forbid whoever had him, it's absolutely horrible to imagine. But they did a darn good job to make sure no one would find him. It's now been 40 hours since Kyron disappeared. His adorable little face was shown on every local news station, and the Hormans set up a Facebook page where people can add updates if they've seen or heard anything. Kane, Desiree, and Terry Horman refuse to talk to the press. They're just not ready yet. When they're not helping investigators search or when they're not answering questions to law enforcement, they're crying all day and night, praying that someone, someone will find Kyron and soon, echoing in their heads over and over, is that the ticking clock is against them. They know that with the passage of every minute, every hour, the likelihood of finding this child alive is going down, down, down. While the dozens of search teams swept through the woods near Skyline Elementary, Terry printed out a thousand missing persons flyers of Chiron, complete with his picture, a hotline number, and a reward for $25,000. They contained specifics of Chiron's appearance, three feet, eight inches tall, 50 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair, last seen wearing black cargo pants, white socks, and black sketchers. Those are tennis shoes. They had an orange trim. Friends and neighbors posted that flyer on every window, every lamppost, every billboard or wall they could tape it to. A thousand flyers were passed out, but police still had not one credible lead. On Wednesday, June 9th, The county sheriff's office holds a press conference in relation to Kyron's disappearance. But there's no good news to report. Authorities call him a missing and endangered child. And it was on this day, the very same day that police begged the public for help, help for this missing and endangered little boy, that Terry did something that had a lot of people questioning if she was really the desperate and upset stepmother she had been claiming to be. Despite Terry crying, despite her appearing upset and printing out thousands of flyers, she was also about to exhibit some behavior that did not track at all with what you would expect from a parent desperate to find a child she had helped raise since he was a baby. It was a move that shifted everything, and it was really the first time where both the police and Kyron's biological parents began wondering if Terry might know more than she was letting on. Terry posted on her personal Facebook page, quote, hitting the gym tomorrow. I didn't get home until 8 p.m. tonight. Seems like a simple enough message, but many people saw it as a huge red flag. People wondered what kind of mother figure whose child was missing, whose child was endangered, would ever post on Facebook about, quote, hitting the gym. Well, that would be because the, uh, the law enforcement uh, told us to go to do, told us to do things that we normally do. 
So they want you to go grocery shopping. They want you to go to the gym. They actually specifically told both Kane and I, and he was with me that day when we went. It just didn't look good. Terry may as well have stamped guilty on her forehead. But still, she wasn't a suspect. Guilty of poor taste, perhaps, but not considered by police a person of interest. But this Facebook post wasn't the first thing Terry allegedly did that the police had some questions about. When Kyron didn't show up for class that morning, both Kane and Desiree had wondered why the school didn't call them to alert them to his absence. That was normal protocol. But it just didn't happen, and the reason why cast another shadow of suspicion on Terry. A teacher at the school told investigators she didn't call Kyron's parents about his absence because she thought they already knew. Why? She said because Terry had previously told her she would be taking Kyron to a doctor's appointment on Friday. So the teacher just assumed that's where he was. Immediately, police wondered if Terry had warned the school Kyron wouldn't be there to buy herself some time before anyone realized he was gone. But Terry was insistent it was all just a misunderstanding. She said absolutely not. She simply told them he'd be missing school on Friday, but never specified which Friday it was. The teacher just assumed it was the day Kyron vanished. The teacher just assumed it was the next Friday to come up after she made the comment to the teacher. But between that and Terry's tone-deaf post on Facebook, there were too many questions police felt needed to be answered. Detectives asked her to take a polygraph test. She agreed. She took the test. She failed. Before we go any further... I want to remind you that a failed polygraph doesn't necessarily mean someone is guilty. In fact, it's not even admissible in state court. Kane later told reporters that Terry agreed to take the polygraph and then came home and vented to friends, family, and law enforcement at the house that she had failed. The hits just didn't stop coming for Terry after that. Investigators distributed a flyer with Terry's photo on it asking if anyone saw Kyron's stepmother near Skyline School on the day the child vanished. They still did not call her a suspect or a person of interest. They claimed they were just looking for any information. They also announced the search for Kyron has shifted from a missing, endangered child case to a criminal investigation. Kane and Desiree, who had previously been a united front with Terry, Well, they began to turn on her. They wondered why she had failed a lie detector test. They both had taken polygraphs and passed with flying colors. At a press conference, Desiree claimed, and I quote, Terry is not taking an active role in finding Chiron. She then pleaded with Terry, do the right thing. She was pleading with her to cooperate. Meanwhile, police were working to pinpoint exactly where Terry was driving after she claimed she dropped the child off at school on the day he went missing. They saw something strange. They saw something unexplained on her cell phone records. 
a ping on Salvi Island, a large river island just 30 minutes north of Portland. Terry had never mentioned being in that area when she detailed her day to detectives. What could she have been doing there? Well, Terry insisted nothing because she says she was never there. Are there cameras on the bridge to Salvi Island? There is one to go. There's one uh, bridge to go over, and there's cameras on it, and I was not on any cameras. So if you had crossed that bridge, you would be on a camera. Sure. Your car would show your camera crossing the bridge, and, and we would know when. I mean, it's a fairly narrow time, and the police have never produced a video of you or your car crossing the bridge to Salvi Island. Correct. She said the only time she drove outside of Portland that day after 11 a.m. was in order to calm her daughter's earache. It was possible her cell could have pinged off a tower on the island as she drove by the bridge on the main road. If you look at pictures of Salvi Island, it's not surprising investigators would want to search the area or have suspicions when they saw her cell phone pinged there. The dense woods and deep waters could easily be the grave of a missing child. A ground team searched the nearby woods while a team of divers searched the bottom of the lake. And if they're searching within the water, what they're looking for is not a child, but the remains of a child. But after a full day of searching deep in the island's waters, the divers were not able to find anything, and the trail went cold once again. Still, despite the fact that they were searching for a body where her cell phone pinged on the day this little boy went missing, police were not calling Terry a suspect or even a person of interest. But the sheriff's office certainly didn't shy away from indicating to the public that Terry could somehow be involved. They handed out flyers with another clue. The flyers contained three separate pictures, one of Kyron, one of Terry, and another of a mysterious white truck similar to the one Terry drove the morning Kyron disappeared. It's not known who this other truck belongs to, but it looked a lot like Terry's truck. And as the public began turning on Terry, detectives asked her to take a second polygraph test. Kane said Terry agreed to cooperate, but she got up and walked out before the machine portion of the test could be administered. According to Kane, she then continually pushed back and refused to repeat the second test for several days. I'm talking eight to 10 days before going to take the test and then once again coming back to the house and revealing she had failed for a second time. Remember, when you take a polygraph, it can come back deceptive, non-deceptive, or inconclusive. There are three options, and only one of them is that you answered the questions in a deceptive way. She failed a second time, meaning that when she was asked questions about knowledge or involvement in the disappearance of Kyron Horman, she denied it, and the results were that she was being deceptive. 
meaning that she either knew or was involved in his disappearance, according to the polygraph. And I remind you again, a polygraph is not an exact science. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. One of the questions was, was Kyron in the truck with you? Well, there's a fail right there because he was in the truck with me on the way to school, but not when we're leaving. So that one I can't even get right. And that was the one that I supposedly failed. He didn't ask you if you didn't ask me if, if you I knew heard where, my son, where he was. He uh, did ask if I knew. Um, what? Do you do you know who do you know who has him or? Yeah, do you know do you know who has him or where he is? But the one that was failed was whether or not he was in the truck with me. At this point, the search for Kyron had reached its 22nd day, and after the two failed polygraphs, trouble was brewing inside the Horman household. The phone rings at the sheriff's office. It's a 911 call from none other than Kane Horman asking for police assistance against his wife, who he says is threatening him. Kane reportedly leaves his home with Kiara, leaving Terry behind. The police try to defuse the situation, but Kane is convinced that it is in their best interest and safety to get away from Terry, at least until they've found the missing boy. It doesn't take long for the media to pick this up. When she's asked about the explosive fight, Terry denied it, claiming that, and I quote, A rumor that needs to be squelched. Everything's fine. But it was obvious to the Horman family, the Portland community, the media, and the rest of the country that everything was not fine. Terry was under the microscope, and everyone's fingers were pointed directly at her. Now, including even her own husband's. Terry's reputation went from bad to worse. The media was jumping all over her. When Terry's father, Larry, was interviewed by People Magazine on the status of the investigation and whether or not Terry, quote, did it, he did not miss any words about his daughter. When asked if his daughter was going to prison, Larry said he gave it, quote, 50-50 odds. Naturally, this did not help Terry's image in the slightest. She was clearly in the hot seat, and details of her separation with Kane was all over the press, and now her own father is saying, eh, it's a coin toss. What you would expect a father that believed in his daughter to say was, of course she didn't hurt a child. I've raised her from a baby. I know her heart. I know her values. She's not capable of that. I stand behind her 100%. Look somewhere else. 
Instead, he says, yeah, 50-50. For Cain, the suspicious and erratic behavior from his wife, well, it just became impossible to ignore. Gone was the stepmother who was crying all day and posting flyers on every corner. What Cain was seeing was a wife who was extremely defensive, vague, dismissive of the several red flags surrounding her. And since she did not want to confront them or admit any wrongdoing, then for Cain, it only proved her guilt. He now fully believed that she was involved in his son's disappearance. There was no other way around it in his mind. That's what led to a big fight on June 26th. By this time, Cain was absolutely convinced that his partner for seven years committed a heinous and unthinkable crime against his innocent and vulnerable son. With this newfound belief in his mind, Cain Horman legally filed for a restraining order against Terry. Under the rules of this restraining order, Terry was not allowed to come anywhere near him and their daughter. And as it turned out, he may have had good reason. Investigators were interviewing everyone involved with the Horman family, and they had just gotten to Rodolfo Rudy Sanchez, a landscaper hired by Terry that tended their backyard. And when investigators questioned Rudy, they got way more than they could have ever bargained for. Rudy didn't seem to have any clues about what happened to Chiron, but he did make a shocking claim about Terry. And before I tell you what that is, I have to point out these claims have been 100% unsubstantiated and have not been proven by any investigation or in any court. What I'm about to tell you is simply the hearsay of a gentleman who worked there and knew Terry somewhat closely. According to Rudy, Terry approached him in January of 2010 to offer him a job, but he claimed it was not a landscaping job. He claimed Terry offered him $10,000 to murder her husband, Cain. He claimed Terry provided him details of Cain's daily routine and suggested that Rudy make the killing look like a mugging. I need to repeat, no investigator was able to prove Rudy's claims. However, these allegations were serious, and it was the top story in the newspaper for their July 4th edition. The media was ruthless. Terry had no choice but to lawyer up and begin mounting a strong defense against the allegations that were beginning to swirl around her. Did you have a personal relationship with this landscaper? No, he wanted one though. And I had, he, um, <clears throat> there was a comment about Mother's Day. Um, he had come out to the house to do some yard work on Mother's Day. According to him, he wanted to see me on Mother's Day. And he was dressed differently, and he had cologne on. And then he comes up to me, and he said, well, I just really wanted to see you. And he put his, I was holding my daughter here, and he comes up to my left side, and he puts his arms around me and gave me a kiss by the, the ear and wouldn't let go. And I thought that 
oh great, I'm out five acres in the middle of nowhere, this guy is going to rape me right here in front of my daughter. Did you tell your husband about it? No. Why not? Because he did not know that I had a landscaper that was coming out to the house to do yard work. Um, What do you mean he didn't know you had a landscaper coming to the house? He was very hard on James and myself about taking care of things. He just assumed that his, his job, as he said, was to work and that mine is to take care of the house and home, including the children. Um, and so... He thought you were mowing the grass? He thought James was. How old is James? At the time, he would have been about 15. And, and it's, it's, it's two acres of mobile, mobile area. We're not talking like it's a yard. I mean, it's, it's, sure. it's big. And I, I, when, the, when the landscaper came out to do the yard work, he came out, if I recall, five different times to do significant work. Um, and when he did, I gave James the credit for it. Okay, so Cain didn't know there was a yard man at all? No. So you were lying to your husband. There was deception. You were lying to your husband. Yes. And then this landscaper starts hitting on you. Yes. Then what am I going to say? I've already, I already created a lie. I, I'm trying to give the, the benefit to James. I'm not, you know, telling, he's not paying for it. I'm paying it for out of my own pocket for this landscaper to do the yard work. You, you see how it begins how people begin to look at this because I'm, I'm this is why I'm giving you a chance to clear these things up because they say okay um, you're lying to the media about the status of your marriage when it's in a downward spiral and you said no 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 everything's fine it's all a rumor don't even think about it everything's fine when in fact you know that he's left with a baby that things are in serious trouble you're lying to your husband about having a landscaper, then the landscaper's hitting on you, so now you can't say him because you've lied to him about him being there, so right. I'm saying there's a landscaper you don't even know is here, but he's showing up with cologne on and, and grabbing onto me while I'm holding the baby, and so I gotta tell you about that, and so you lie about that, so you lied about having him, then you lie by omission about him accosting you out there, and then you told the, the police, is there anybody that you can think of that might have a reason to want to take Kyron or hurt him in any way? And you describe this landscaper, but you describe him as a stranger, right? You do say you need to consider this guy over here, right. but you don't say he's a landscaper that's been in my employee. Yes, I did. You, you, did you tell yes, him I, that? You told the police yes, then? Yes, I did. I told him how many times, what dates that he that had been there, um, that James had actually worked with him uh, in tandem. They removed some branches together. So is that when Kane found out that there was yeah. a landscaper? Yeah. I, found- I, I told the police every, I said everything at all. I did not keep anything back. Did so, that make the landscaper mad? I don't did know. Did you point I, a finger at him? Is that maybe why he made this story up? Because that's a, that's a pretty bizarre story to make up, just like... Oh, she offered me $10,000 to kill her husband. Exactly. Well, I don't know why he said that, other than he's... Um, that the, the, cop, the cops did the same thing to me as far, and, and they did the same thing to my friend, um, D.D. Spicer, is that basically they say, you tell us what we want to hear. If you don't tell us what we want to hear, we're going to make your life hell. She hired a high-powered criminal defense lawyer, Stephen Howes. Stephen was known to be one of the best and most expensive criminal defense lawyers in the state and had a strong reputation for preventing clients 
from getting serious jail time. The breakdown of Terry and Kane's marriage only furthered Desiree's belief that Terry had reason to harm her son. You say that the night before Kyron went missing, that things happened that you now know about, that you've discovered that had you known about, she would never have been allowed to leave the house with him. What did you find out? What do you know? Well, as always, Terry put everything in writing, which, God love her, um, has been a blessing for us. And um, she put down in writing that her and Kane were up until three in the morning fighting about their marital problems, that she had told him she was done with it all, that um, she was moving back to Roseburg, they were getting a divorce, she was done with it. And it was gonna be Friday, the day that Kyron went missing. So big upheaval that night? No. That didn't happen? No. It was a normal morning for me, up at five o'clock to the gym, back home, get ready for work, kiss Kyron goodbye, go to the office. But you're saying that, that you have seen, personally read, an email from her account to yes. a friend of hers that says, we're fighting till 3 a.m. in the morning, filing, out of here, yep. gone. Yep. And you're saying that you did not fight till did 3 you? in the morning. Did you fight till 2 or 1 or 12 or 11 or 10? There was, there was no big blow up that night. No. Are, are you shocked to hear this? That, that, she's, that there's an email that's, that, no. that she's written. Why does that not surprise you? There's a lot of that. There's a lot of information where she's writing things down and we go do the interviews at, even with law enforcement and the actual activities don't match the, the emails. Now you might think this woman has potentially lied about her whereabouts on the day this child went missing. She is posting insensitive and baffling updates on Facebook. She has a landscaper out here claiming she tried to hire him as a hitman to take out her husband. Her phone is pinging on a random out-of-the-way island on the day her stepson vanishes. What could possibly be worse? Well, you won't believe what investigators discovered next. That while little Kyron Horman was missing, she was focused on something else entirely. A steamy affair. We'll tell you about that and about a mystery friend of Terry's who allegedly was nowhere to be found during the exact hours Terry was unaccounted for on the day Kyron went missing. Plus, we will hear from Terry. Yes, this all looks bad, but why she says she was targeted and smeared from the very beginning. And I know I'm repeating myself, but in fairness, I want to say again, Terry has never been charged with any crime concerning the disappearance of Kyron Horton. Believe me when I say we have only scratched the surface of this child's disappearance. That and more is on the next episode of Into Thin Air. The Mysterious Disappearance of Kyron Horman. I'm Dr. Phil. Thanks for listening.
first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.